and that was kind of the the first big trauma and difficulty that I that I had to face and it really it was a really big setback it was you know the a doctor first thing said to me uh you know I brought up my huge passion like you know this goes back to middle school like I've just told this tale like I've oriented my universe around making these decisions to pursue what I love to pursue physical challenges to pursue and express myself through these mediums and you know the doctor's response was oh yeah you're probably just gonna let that part of your life go and I can just remember like and then he just walks out of the room to go see his next patient you know like drops that line and then walks out um and I remember just my spirit sort of sinking because it's like the only version of myself I had known up until that point was expressing himself through physical activity and I loved that version of myself. And so, yeah, the, at first it was this huge sinking feeling, but then in the very next thought, it was this like, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know the work I'm willing to put in for what I want. You don't know how much I'm willing to, to suffer. And right there, I made the promise to myself. It's like, no, 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 like I will do whatever work necessary to get back. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we're here to shine a light on those who are living what sits on their hearts. People who continue to move forward despite evidence to the contrary, obstacles in the way, challenges, and even traumas that upend a seemingly on-track life. People who pick themselves up by focusing on what they can do and show us all that with persistence and patience, all things are possible. People like Jason Hardrath, the king of FKTs and subject of the Athletic Brewing Journey to 100 documentary. You may have already heard Jason's name being dropped on this podcast during our interview with Bill Schufelt from Athletic Brewing, or perhaps when we interviewed Jason's partner, the lovely queen of FKTs, Ashley Winchester. Jason is the first human to complete 100 FKTs, or fastest known time routes, a number he has since surpassed and in fact did so during his 100th FKT attempt when he conquered Washington State's 100 highest peaks known as the Bulgers List. Jason has been on the media train talking about his outstanding accomplishment and will be linking up to some of those podcasts, including the Journey to 100 film in the show notes, because there's no way we're going to be able to cover all the incredible stories, details, and obstacles that he overcame during that project within this hour, especially since he's made his return to triathlon, and we got to talk about that. We're excited to get to know this guy and share him with you all. Jason, welcome to the show. What an amazing introduction. Um, so glad that this came together. Thank you for having me here. I'm, I'm excited to chat about as much as we can fit. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. You know, um, so there's, gosh, you've been talking about this. You've been doing so many podcasts. You've literally been on this media train. But one thing I didn't include in the intro is really where it all began. And um, because I love to hear you tell that story um, about where it all began, because it was a long time ago that you started to set goals and smash those goals. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I guess you have to rewind way, way, way back. Uh, you know, I was an ADHD little kid who absolutely couldn't sit still. Um, from a very early age, movement was absolutely essential. Um, and so all through my childhood, very animated, you know, very struggled in, in all traditional settings um, where you're supposed to sit still and shut up. And uh, yeah, not, not so good at that. Um, still to this day, not, not so good at that. Um, I'm, I'm well known among my staff members for completely missing paperwork and missing emails. Yeah, you know, my 
principal made fun of me for uh, not even getting my contract signed on time. And she's like, oh my gosh, I freak out about that every year to be the first one done. It's like, you know, here it is like a month late and you still haven't done it. Um, <laughs> it's like, yep, yeah, pretty much every year. Um, so terrible employee, great teacher. But uh, same thing as a kid, just struggled with homework, struggled with social relationships, struggled with any sort of structured system or, or institution. Um, but movement, movement was something I could do. And so a, a big hinge piece of that happened in middle school, um, where I had this, this chance to chase a, a six minute mile. I was running like somewhere mid sixes, six twenty maybe. Um, and I can look back and be like, ah, oh, that's, you know, wasn't that easy of a mark to shave, you know, 20, 25 seconds off of a mile time. But back then I didn't know any better. Um, and I set this goal to, to try to run under six minute miles and be and under a six minute mile and be the, uh, the fastest PE miler for the school that year. And, uh, you know, worked, worked and worked all, all school year long, putting in, you know, extra laps whenever we would go outside. Um, and that final PE mile of the school year managed to run through the line. And I can still remember all that mattered was the teacher read five at the front end of it. And it was a 557 is what it ended up being. But I just remember flopping into the grass and just being in pain all over my body, um, but being so deeply gratified, so deeply pleased with what I'd done. Um, and that just locked in and solidified this goal setting mindset. Like, okay, if I'm willing to work hard, if I'm willing to suffer, if I'm willing to put in the work, then I can achieve difficult goals. And it just sort of solidified that in my mind. And so uh, yeah, one thing led to another where it's like, okay, I want to try to run in high school and I want to run on varsity. And then it's like, okay, I want to make it to state. And it's like, okay, when I, when I'd done that, I was like, all right, I want to try to make it onto a, a college team. Now I had a reality check happen when I was in high school where I thought, okay, my, my goal is to break the school record. And, you know, the reality check there was it's like, I got nowhere near that record, like not even remotely close. Um, and so to face sort of a reality check that it's okay, I have limitations, but what can I still do within this space? Because clearly I still love it and I still enjoy pushing myself like this. And so the goal became like, all right, I want to I run well enough to get myself onto a college team. Um, and so I, I worked my butt off and r raced my best and did a really good job of marketing myself as well, something that wasn't common back then. Um, you know, put out, put together videos with the help of my dad, um, and actually sent them out to coaches, which, you know, nowadays that's totally commonplace, but back then it wasn't and managed to get myself on a small NAIA college team and, and run through college as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, the story just goes on and on. Uh, I, I ended up, uh, attempting to transition up to the marathon during college kind of unsuccessfully, wasn't quite ready for it yet. But then when I graduated university, I, uh, biked across the United States. Um, the idea had like stuck in my head when I first bought a road bike, like the moment I hit 20 miles an hour, my first ride ever, I'm like, I should bike across the USA. Just like hit me like a brick out of the sky and then just stuck. Um, and so my greatest fear graduating college, if you'd asked me, I would have articulated it back then. It's waking up 30 years from now and wondering what the heck I did with my life. Like that was this visceral fear that I had as I graduated. And I consider myself lucky to have had it at such a young age. Um, and so like when the thought crossed my mind again of biking across the USA, I was like, oh man, like I could get stuck in a job. I better do it now. Like now is the time. Um, and that was sort of the first grand adventure, if you will, and succeeding at that grand adventure and having the goodness of people 
the, my, my faith in people sort of built by doing this big project and raised like $7,000 for a child center to be built in Guatemala. Um, and people, you know, basically every night I had no clue where I was going to sleep. And I would call ahead to churches and, and organizations in a town I thought was a reasonable distance to bike. And every night I ended up with a place to stay. Um, and so it was just this cool experiment in the goodness of humanity. And I think it set, it set the tone for me to have this belief about, okay, if you're aiming at something worthwhile, people will take note and come alongside you. Um, and so, you know, then continued on to get into Ironman triathlon, um, cause it's like, okay, I clearly love to bike and I'm actually pretty good at it. I, I can look back now and be like humorously like, ah, I'm not really built to be a runner too bad. I fell in love with running, but also I still totally love running. But if I'd fallen in love with cycling at a young age, maybe I would have actually amounted to something. <laughs> um, I was a much better cyclist than I was a runner. And so then the question was like, well, how can I combine these two? And the obvious answer is, well, I guess I have to learn how to swim. So I signed up for my first full Ironman because that's how you make the transition into mm -hmm. triathlon is go straight into full Ironman when you can't swim more than three lengths of a pool. Um, and taught myself how to swim over the course of six months, clearly like asking every single person who could swim better than me for any advice they had, um, whether they were interested in giving me advice or not. And uh, yeah, did the Ironman St. George the final year that it was a full Ironman, and it was a brutal year, <laughs> second highest attrition rate of any Ironman ever at that point, up until that point, and managed to survive it. And uh, yeah, got through and then... I mean, I guess I'll just keep running with the story. Why not? Um, then 2015 rolls along. I, I'd qualified for a couple of world championships um, in the 70.3 distance. Um, again, by just putting in a tremendous amount of work and training and sort of seeing seeing how to piece this together and finally put together sort of my perfect day, if you will. I uh, qualified for the 2014 70.3 world championships at, Cal at Calgary, Canada. And then like... Three weeks later, because of the weird Ironman uh, calendar, uh, I qualified for the 2015 World Championships at Lake Stevens um, in Washington, and then finished at the 2014 World Championships, uh, and my training was like reaching a whole nother level where I was going for like 100, I, I can remember, uh, on, on May... On the Sunday, I think it was like May 2nd or something, I might be a little off on my days there, but... Uh, basically, the Sunday of this May day, uh, I went for a 140-mile bike ride, and I got off and went for a run and felt great and, like, went and played Frisbee with my friends afterwards. It was, like, sweet. Like, my, my training, my fitness is on a whole nother level. Like, this is the year I'm going to, like, successfully transition up to full Ironman at a competitive, like, not just finish, but compete the whole distance level. Um, and then that Tuesday, I went out the car window in a rollover accident and broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, broke my shoulder in two places, put contusions through my internal organs, uh, and ripped the ACL and LCL apart in my right knee. Um, and that was kind of the, the first big trauma and difficulty that I, that I had to face. And it really, it was a really big setback. It was, you know, the, a doctor first thing said to me, uh, you know, I brought up my huge passion, like, you know, this goes back to middle school. Like I've just told this tale, like I've, oriented my universe around making these decisions to pursue what I love, to pursue physical challenges, to pursue and express myself through these mediums. And, you know, the doctor's response was, oh yeah, you're probably just going to let that part of your life go. 
And I can just remember like, and then he just walks out of the room to go see his next patient, you know, like drops that line and then walks out. Um, and I remember just my spirit sort of sinking. Cause it's like the only version of myself I had known up until that point was expressing himself through physical activity. And I loved that version of myself. And so, yeah, the, at first it was this huge sinking feeling, but then in the very next thought, it was this, like, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know the work I'm willing to put in for what I want. You don't know how much I'm willing to, to suffer. And right there, I made the promise to myself. It's like, no, no, no. Like I will do whatever work necessary to get back. And you know, it's again, I had that reality check in high school where it's like, you can't set unreasonable goals. So it's like, I couldn't say, oh, I'm going to compete in world championships again or da, 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 da. The promise in the moment was I'm going to do whatever work it takes to get back to some version of what I love. And that was the agreement with, with myself right in that moment. And, and it was a painful road back and it was hard and there were a ton of setbacks and it took over two years. Um, and I had to reset my whole mindset to like go back to ground zero. You know, it's like we think we own the results of what we do. But it's like, no, all you ever have is the process, right? In the snap of fingers, it's like anything you think you've built, anything you think you own, anything you think you've created is gone. And all you're left with is the process. So you better actually love the process that got you there in the first place. And that's, that's what I had to fall back on. Is it's like, okay, I know this process that, that we all learn as endurance athletes. That It's like, okay, I'm going to embrace and even fall in love with more discomfort now, more pain now for better outcomes later, more abilities later. I'm going to do the hard work now so I can do more later. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the, you know, the agreement any athlete makes, like that's the agreement of a, a within an individual interval training session. Like, okay, I'm going to suffer through this repeat. Okay. Again, okay. Again, and again, and again, right. Uh, into the mesocycles and the macro cycles, like all of it is this process of believing in the process. So, uh, just leaned into that through this, um, PT and recovery and uh, also discovered, you know, I, I knew enough because I'm a PE teacher. Um, I'm, I'm in my PE office. I don't know whether the video will play with this or not, but I've got my bib numbers on the wall from the 143 different races I've done hanging behind me because it starts conversations with students about life and decisions and running and chasing what makes you come alive. Um, and what, what I knew to, to, to become a teacher, what I had to study was biomechanics. And it's like, okay, when you're walking up and down steep hills, you don't need the same range of motion in your knee as you do when you want to run efficiently. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm a hiker now. And so I started hiking hills and hills led to mountains and mountains led to bigger mountains. And pretty soon I was getting into mountains that, oh, these are technical at the top. Like I need to be able to rock climb. So it's like, all right, I guess I'm a rock climber now. And so I had to go embrace the wonderful feelings of being willing to suck at something new after being used to being very good at something in the past. And that's always a fun thing. And I took a note from my kindergartners there, right? Because you could hand a kindergartner a basketball and they'll shoot for hours, missing every single time and never lose any enthusiasm because they don't have that self-judgment yet that we develop as adults where we're like, oh, I suck at this. I, I need to leave. Like people are going to think, think I'm terrible. And it's like I had to, I noticed that come on right away when like 11 year olds were better climbers than me in the climbing gym. I was literally the worst person there. Um, and so like, yeah, anyways, endured that and, and built these climbing skills, got to where I could climb technical peaks and, uh, well, 
over the same interval of time, the got back to where I could at least jog and, and run a little bit for a sustained distance, you know, go 10 or 20 miles and not have my knee swell up into a grapefruit. And uh, then it was natural to go, well, let's combine these things and see what happens. Let's go run between technical peaks. Let's go run and bike and swim between technical peaks. Let's see what's possible. And then luckily discovered fastest known times as a community and a, 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 a forum for like sharing that with others. Um, so it was really, a, it was almost an obvious choice. Like, oh, this is already what I'm doing. It's already what I love, even without a formal entity around it. So let's just jump in and do a hundred of these. Because it means I'll do a hundred <laughs> things that I love doing. <laughs> was that a, a d decision you had really soon after discovering FKT? Like very early. I'm going to do a hundred. Very, mm. very sort of like the brick out of the air. Air when I first rode the bike, you know, I hit 20 miles an hour and I'm like bike across the country. It was kind of the same thing. It's like discovered FKTs, uh, did a few, and submitted some of my old right. My first FKTs on my list are actually things that I broke the record on or set the record on before I even knew I was like doing an FKT. It was just like, I was out <laughs> pushing hard in the mountains anyways. And then kind of was like retroactively was like, that's a really cool route. Other people would really like this route and did the research to see if anybody had already done it. And nobody had like done it or done it faster, at least reported it in any way. And so it's like, cool, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and report these. And yeah, so very early on, it was like, okay, I'm going, I'm going for a hundred of these. And it took me a while to like voice that. Cause obviously it's like, you make some bold, wild claim like that. Cause I think the most a person had when I started was like 47 or something. Um, and so it makes some wild claim like, oh yeah, I'm going to do a hundred of these would have been kind of ridiculous in most people's eyes. So it's like, that's for me. And you know, everybody else can just think whatever they want to think. <laughs> so when like, you rode your bike, you know, 20 miles and you were like, I'm going to go across country. You know, you decide early on that you're going to do a hundred FKTs. Is this coming from, is this coming from like intellect or is this coming from a connection to something deeper, like intuition? Do you feel it? Like, do you feel a knowing like, oh God, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this. Or is it like, oh, this is a cool idea. Let's, let's go for it. Um, I think it, it aligns it definitely aligns on a deep level. I mean, I think it has that cool idea element to it as well. I, you know, it's a bit of both, but there's also, yeah, like this, like deeper sense of like, oh, this would be of value. This would be of importance. Cause I think something that spoke to me from a very young age, there's a, I actually just chatted with someone about this. Um, there's a couple of quotes that really spoke to me when I was younger. The first one is, no stream rises higher than its source. And so I think I think one of the driving, orienting things in how I make decisions in my life is sort of this sense of uh, sage wisdom and becoming someone who can give sage wisdom. Um, like that's, that's an oriented thing. It's why I became a teacher. I didn't become a teacher because it's like, oh, I want the paycheck or, um, oh, I didn't have anything better to do. It's like, no, no, no. What's something I derive an incredible amount of value from? creating aha moments for other people, creating breakthroughs where, where something was impossible or perceived as impossible, and now it's not. Um, and so if you take and apply the, the ancient Chinese wisdom, no stream can rise higher than its source, then intuitively you go, okay, I need to do everything I can to aim as high as I can to test myself to become a better version of myself so that I can be that higher source for others. Because um, if I don't bother to become anything, then I have nothing to teach. You can only teach what you learn. You can only teach what you become. Um, 
And the thing, you know, again, being sort of authentic to myself, the thing I've naturally had the most drive toward are things that are physical in their expression, physical challenges, physical pursuits, physical tests. And so like, you know, eight-year-old me would be very proud that I continued along along those lines. Um, so the second quote that sort of informed, I think, how I ended up where I am is a, a mentor of mine said to me at a very young age, uh, well, I guess I wasn't that young. I might have been middle school age. Um, human beings are like a tube of toothpaste. You find out what's truly inside when they get squeezed. And that really stuck with me where it's like, oh, yeah, like the veneer most people can keep on, the performance most people can keep on when life is all going perfectly and everything's just right. You know, it's easy to be nice to people when everything's good in life, but who are you when stuff is crumbling down around you? What do you have to say? You know, who who can you be for others in those moments? And I was like, oh, for some reason that really resonated with me. Like, and it made me want to pursue things that boiled me down to that core where it's like, who's down in there? Like all of the all of the busyness of society and the performances and acts and roles that we go through. It's like when all of that's gone, who am I when I'm when I'm raw and when things aren't going right? Um, and that's that's the me that's most important to get to know. Um, and so yeah, I think I think all of that dovetails into why I would have sort of an intuitive sense and a deeper sense of like, no, I need to go out and pursue these big challenges and and I need to pursue these things that are in alignment with what what I see. I don't know, the, you know, someone much smarter than me, you know, Jordan Peterson, the, one of the ways he puts it is he, he asked the question, you know, what should you do in the sense of what would society have you do? What would your family have you do? Like all of the different voices that are out there, what should you do? And also your own expectations for yourself. And then the next layer of question is what could I do? So it's like some things are out of your control. It's like, oh, you know, I can't just become a millionaire tomorrow and donate all the money to help somebody out. It's like, that's impossible. So I can't do that but what could I do? And then the last question you ask after you've boiled that down is what would I do or what will I do? And then that gets down to the things that's like, oh, I can actually have the passion and the follow through and can take control here and now to do this actual thing. I can execute, you know, it's actionable. And I think that's just sort of like the process that that I followed where it's like, okay, seek the next challenge, seek the next challenge, seek the next challenge. You know, it's not like I, I knew I was going to be breaking the record on climbing a hundred peaks when I started climbing, you know, or started doing FKTs. I just was pursuing the next size up challenge. And then I arrived at a place where it was a reasonable decision that the next step was to attempt to climb a hundred peaks that nobody tried to climb that fast or even a single season before. Um, so yeah. I guess that's a really long answer, but I think I, I got to the core of your question. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, you're out there doing it for the greater good. If you look at it like that, you're doing it for the greater good. You're developing, you're doing self-development. You're putting yourself in that Grand Canyon, trying to figure out how to get out in the most extreme circumstance so you can gain experience to then share with others and inspire them to believe that, hey, guess what? I'm not the only one that can do it. You all can do it too. It's possible. Absolutely. But you got to put yourself in that predicament. That's that's where I think. That's where I think. When Jess was talking about the the mind, the mind interrupts that process and it says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa pump the brakes, hold on." Logistically, how's that going to happen? I don't have the money to financially do it. I need to get all this fitness and all these 
let's call them excuses, flood in, and then you pause and you stop. Not you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, but most people out there. And so now that you're on this path, Jason, can you, can you see that pretty, pretty prominently in others? I know you're, you work with kids a lot, but can you see that in other adults where they, it's clearly they're just holding themselves back from this joy that they can experience. They're so close to it. Absolutely. Uh, I I use the phrase, the commonly known phrase, self-limiting beliefs. Um, Like I'm very, I pick up on them very keenly within even ordinary conversation. If ordinary conversation is, you know, one of the side effects of being ADHD is it's tough for me to tune stuff out. So even if I'm just in a room and I hear a phrase that that is a self-limiting belief, I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Um, and like, so I'm very keen on those and I notice them in myself too. Like when, you know, something might pop out of my mouth, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, that's self-limiting. I'm holding myself back there. Um, and you know, obviously I have blind spots like anybody, but, but occasionally I'm lucky enough to, to have the awareness to notice myself doing them as well. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely huge. And I think, I think it's way, it's very easy within our nature to, create a a web of like excuses, if you will, or a web of beliefs that succeed at holding us back Um, from stop from it's way easier to do an apathetic nothing than to do a meaningful something. Um, And, and I think, you know, sometimes people insultingly use the phrase like put yourself together. Um, But I think there's a reason we reach for that phrase because I think, you know, we know intuitively that we're not just computers. It's not just an on-off switch. It's like you have hundreds of different instincts. You know, you talk to somebody that gets married at a young age, and even if they have a happy relationship, they kind of go, oh, I kind of wonder if I made the decision too soon. And you talk to somebody that hasn't been in a sustained relationship, and they're like, oh, it's so hollow and empty, and da-da-da, even if they have no problems connecting with someone of the opposite sex, or if they're into the same sex, that too. Um, but like, there's there's multiple instincts and drives within us as human beings, drives to explore, drives to play, drives to be creative, uh, drives to find a partner, drives to, you know, go out and have fun and to do new things. So it's like you're always wrestling so many different parts of yourself. And so to put oneself together is to find a way to stack all of those pieces as we each experience them individually to actually move towards something that's meaningful to us instead of to stop ourselves from moving towards something meaningful. And I think that's, we don't give enough credit to how difficult that actually is. Um, I don't think we, we applaud people nearly enough for when they actually manage to, to put themselves to, together in a way that they're moving towards something. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, working with kids, like I get to see and be a part of that initial process. And so I think maybe I just get to be a little more, a little closer to it than, than most people are. Um, yeah, but it's absolutely something that needs to be celebrated when we see it in others. Um, because I, I, yeah, I, I think it goes uncelebrated often sort of people are like, oh, you should be doing something and it should matter to you. Uh, no, that's a process actually. That's, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, it's way easier to just listen to what you're told and to fall in line and to mm. sort of defer that responsibility and then wake up one day and be like, well, why am I here and what am I doing and does it matter to me? Um, I mean, that's <laughs> a non-zero number of people have that experience every single day of sort of waking up to the life they've arrived at. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely something that 
again, making an easy, easy question a lot longer than it needs to be. Definitely something that's on my mind. Yeah, no, I love to hear you. I love to hear you talk. That was one of my, the things that I was looking forward to in this interview is that you're just, you articulate things very well. You're very open, very generous with what you share. Um, and self-limiting beliefs, oh man, I'm, I'm right there with you. Like I'll hear myself use like, you know, like the words of doubt, you know, like, oh, I hope, or, you know, like maybe. And immediately when I'm, when I'm awake enough to catch myself, it's like, woof, okay, walk the talk, you know? And um, this idea of like falling in line and just doing what you're told, yeah, temporary relief for, I think, long-term mis- Misery, right? To like, I think that there's that we have to fall down on the ground to pull ourselves back mm-hmm. up because we have to learn that process because we have to have that contrast to grow. We need that. If we didn't know what misery was, we wouldn't know what joy was and we wouldn't seek joy or adventure if we didn't know what boredom was. Um, so when I look at the role that you play in the lives of these young children, and, you know, they're in, uh, if I'm to use a word from like Toltec wisdom, which is like, they're in the domestication process, right? They're young, their minds are getting molded. <laughs> you know, the, the belief systems of their parents are going in there, belief systems of people, like conversations that they're hearing, they're getting domesticated, right? So they can, we got to do that so we can, we can live in this world and follow the rules and all of that. But at some point, we also have to discover, which is what you've discovered is like, who are you and what matters to you? And celebrate your uniqueness and share your gifts. So I want to hear about um, what the kids' reaction was and also your experience when you screen the film for them as they're mm. looking at someone who seemingly has no <laughs> limits whatsoever um, and they're watching Journey to 100. I'm assuming they saw it. They did. They I, I showed it to them here at the school because, I mean, I didn't realize how that it was locally going to gain any traction. Um, but actually the, the local arts theater ended up doing a whole screening where they bust other students from other schools. Um, and it's like, Oh, should have waited and bust our students too, but instead showed it in the classroom. But I don't know. It gave it a more intimate experience than if they'd just been a part of a room full of 500 other kids. Um, so it was probably better for them in, in, in the bigger picture. Um, but yeah, uh, Getting to show them the film was fun because, I mean, I tell them stories and I derive a lot of uh, lessons, if you will, or, you know, not so much like what I teach to the whole class very often, although it's always embedded in there. There's always layers of this stuff in anything I say because I can't help but think the way I think and believe the way I believe. I've built myself to be this way. So it's always it's always layered in there. But when I when I pull kids aside, there's definitely special stories that I derive and pull from experiences out in nature and pushing myself um, but yeah, getting to finally show them a depiction, a visual depiction of what they'd heard stories of and what they'd kind of heard referenced was, uh, it was really cool to sort of have them go, whoa. Um, and then they asked fabulous questions, but I mean, you know, it's kind of fun because one of the promises I made myself when I stepped into this, this career and this job is we all had that bad PE teacher, right? That was, you know, I can think of one that, that, that I had that was like, overweight with a slurpee on the beer gut rolling around on a golf cart yelling at us to run and it's like okay like now i can look back with the words to say like the reason something seemed wrong there is because it was inauthentic right the the person what the person was asking of us and telling us was important did not in any way match up with what they were embodying and so 
I made a promise off of this intuition to myself that's like, all right, if I ever lose the passion to the degree that I look nothing like what I teach, then I'll step away and do something else. Cause it's like, I'm smart enough. I'm clever enough that I'll figure out a way to make money, probably more money than I make as a teacher. Um, and I won't be ruining kids' lives. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, the, the, there's always this agreement with myself. And the fun part with that is even, you know, we also all can remember PE teachers that were these larger than life characters in, in our mind, just because they, they even did a few things that were physically strong or physically active or could throw a ball really far or kick a ball really far. And it was just like, whoa. Um, and so it's really fun for me, you know, kind of thinking from that child's mind to go, wait a minute, like, I've managed to cultivate myself as a as this person where no matter how many layers they go up and advance themselves, they'll always kind of go back and be like, wait a minute, he still seems like a larger than life character. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, I don't know, there's just this little layer of fun to me for that. Like maybe that's only just personal gratification, but I, I get I get a good degree of amusement thinking thinking through how I'll be some old man in a wheelchair somewhere and and they'll still be going like, how did he do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, they are. They're going to be telling their kids about their PE teacher. Uh, like, absolutely, you are, you are leaving a mark and, on, on their lives. And do you hear any of those self-limiting beliefs at, at a young age with them? Like, and if so, how do, you, how do you work with them on that? Well, I mean... I guess a few different ways to approach that question. Um, one of uh, one of the ways that stands out to me, like uh, you know, a lot of uh, you know, when they get to the older ages, there was that sort of wow factor of like seeing the film. To reference back to the the last question, but the coolest part to me is thinking more about the younger ages, like the kindergarten and the first grade, where there was less of a wow factor to them, and the reason why is in order for something to wow you, you have to have a concept of what normal is. And that's formed between the ages of like three and six years old, two and six years old. And so the coolest part to me is that the person I am and the things I do for these kids that are really young under this age of six, you know, that's a rough age they, they, they say is when that sort of solidifies for us our concept of normal. It's less that they're going to be impressed by me. That's much less important. And more that they're just going to accept that I am a totally standard and normal mm -hmm. adult outcome, adult behavior. And it's like that to me is way cooler than just impressing them or inspiring them. It's like, no, no, no. Like that's going to redefine their whole concept of normal their entire life. And, and that's, that to me is the, the, the coolest outcome of being able to sort of live what I teach and have that be something that I then also love. And I think they all circle into each other. Um, so I guess that kind of answers your question, but maybe not quite. <laughs> no, I love it. No, you just kind of shifted it a little bit into really what I was saying before is like they're, they're, they're getting all of these uh, belief systems downloaded. And one of the ones that you are offering just merely by your existence and your passion and your ability to follow through is that there are no limits, <laughs> which is, is pretty, pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Um, well, I want to ask, um, 
being, you know, in this teaching element and, and what your kids and what people who view this movie and who are now aware of you through, um, through podcasts is uh, noticing a level of detachment and how you work through accomplishing, putting all this energy into FKTs only to see an FKT slip away to another person. So now you, you get it, you get one. And I think you had said like almost 40% have already been um, surpassed already. So you kind of have to be in this element of like, I'm going to put all this energy in here for the love of it. It's going to get, I'm going to accomplish my goal, but then these people are going to one up me again and I need to leave that behind and move forward. So there's this odd space. And I think this is where, you know, racing comes in where you're like, cause you're doing FKTs, which is a form of racing, but this attachment to where you were at one point that you're owed something versus moving on to like some freedom into what's, what's ahead. I think this actually, this actually dovetails into something I regularly talk with my students about, because I think we as Americans have a very faulty concept of what competition really is. Um, I think when you look at competition with, with the full wide angle lens on, and, and you look at, at what service it has within within the human experience is it's not about the elevation and the winning of any one person. It's the fact that the process of us testing ourselves around one another causes us to be better, to reach a little higher. If you're neck and neck with someone, of course, you're going to try to take that one step harder to, to go that little bit better to best them. Like, so, so it's not that it's not that I'm ever disappointed that someone surpasses me. It's like, that's the beauty of it, right? That person saw what I did and bettered themselves. And it's like, I, I can't feel mad about that. Like that pleases me. That's gratifying to me to see that it's like, oh, like this person saw what I did and then came out and put themselves together again, to use that, that phrase, put themselves together in a way that they could go out and do this thing. And, you know, what if I can ask myself the beautiful, what if question, what if I hadn't done the thing? And then therefore they also didn't do the thing. Right. So in a way it makes me proud and happy rather than disappointed and angry that others come along to test themselves on the test pieces. And in a way there's a validation of the test itself, right? If, if it's valuable enough for the next person to come along and work even harder than I did mm. to, to best me, then that must mean it was also a valid test for me to pursue. Because when I started FKTs, they were nowhere near as popular as they are now. Um, and at the time a person might be listening to this podcast, they'll probably be even more popular. So I started this, it was still very niche um, and not, not as why. I mean, COVID was an explosion in FKT awareness. Um, prior to that, it was a pretty niche community where like people kind of knew about it. I think within ultra running uh, circles, um, and a few within like mountaineering or rock climbing circles, but that was pretty much it. Um, oh, backpackers too, um, cause of the long trail FKTs, but yeah, it was a much more niche community than, than what it's grown into, which it's cool to, cool to see that growth. But yeah, yeah. For me, the spirit of competition is that of, you know, and, and this is the difference between the, the person that's really rude to the people they beat. Um, after they've done it, right? Because they think, ha, I'm better than all of you. Instead of being like, oh, I'm so grateful that you all were here because you pushed me to break this record or accomplish this goal or set this you know, time where if I just had to show up and do it solo by myself with no framework, 
Like I might not have even done it to begin with. Um, and it's like, it, it, to me, it's a failure of sight, a failure of vision to not acknowledge the beauty of the entire amalgamation of humanity doing a thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very myopic and self-centered to be like, Oh, I'm angry that my record got beat. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I guess that's how I'd answer that question. Yeah. I think you'd lose your likability a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure. Well, I think this, I think that opens the doorway to a discussion on competition. I think what you shared there is like, let's reframe what we're doing out there. You know, I think we have gotten overly consumed personally. I feel like we got overly consumed with performance and numbers and data and information. Not that it's wrong, but it's our relationship to this information. And in your case, you should shifted right to gratitude, right to gratitude. I'm grateful that I have the ability to get out there and, and push other people to be better. Like what a gift, what an amazing gift. Yeah. yeah. Um, so speaking of, of beating, um, <laughs> you crushed the Bulgers list previous <laughs> FKT by how long? Can you tell our, uh, our listeners? What is it like? 360 days or something. Because um, <laughs> you did it in 50 days. I did it in 50 days, and the previous record was 410. Yeah, so spectacular. It was but 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 I mean, again, I have to I have to be fair. I have to be fair to the person that came before me. I have to be fair to Eric Gilbertson. I did it in a completely different style. I showed up with the mindset of I'm not going to go home until from first peak to last peak. Not going to go home till it's done. And he did it. He was bouncing back and forth between work. Um, and so it's unfair for me to lay claim to this big, bold, beat the FKT by a year thing without also acknowledging that he was doing it in a very different style um, with very different limitations. So, um, yeah, definitely definitely would never want him to come across a, an audio where I was being like, ah, yeah, beat that sucker by da-da-da, you know, because then I become that myopic <laughs> person. Um, no, and he was hugely helpful in the process of doing the six months of planning that was necessary to figure out how this thing could fit into 50 days. Without his help, probably it wouldn't it wouldn't have come together as well. So definitely like huge gratitude there. And, and again, like the spirit of competition at its best, like, oh, like I did a thing, but now I see how, because of my experience, I see how someone could do it better. And if you're willing to put in the work, I'll help you. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely gratitude toward him as well. Yeah. I love how you, uh, just recognized him because he also had different challenges. You had challenges, he had challenges, right? Balancing work. And it's not like he did a peak and was like, oh, I got to rest for three months, right? It was, <laughs> it was, he was, he was coming at it from a different, from a different perspective, a different plan, a different, a different goal, a different adventure um, than yours. But I love that he helped you and you are ready to help the next person. Yeah, that community, that community. I don't know if you followed the sports this weekend, but the sub seven and sub eight. Mm. attempts were only possible and Kipchoge's two hour through community, like through community, the power of community allowed all these things to happen. And I think it's, it's kind of understated a little bit, but it was great to see during the, the finish of those races this weekend, the whole team, the collective um, was participating in the win. And I feel like that that's what's happening in this, in this FKT 
arena knowing that you know there's these unplanned routes there's people that have only done it once or twice and let's pull our information together to get you the coordinates to get you the gps to get everything possible um to, to make it happen and i feel like the power of community is is rising up further than it ever has do you feel that yeah i mean I, I I always hesitate to use a phrase like than it ever has because I think you know the scientific method and scientific thinking allowed us to uh, create distinctions where there used to not be them because we could see like oh this is the objective thing and what are the objective mm-hmm. properties of that thing where more ancient mindsets endowed the nature of the thing with all of what its experience was uh, how it affected you. Right, So the emotions a thing caused were kind of almost a part of the thing is a way of saying that. Um, and so I think maybe those that came before us a lot longer were in touch with this a bit more. That it's like, oh, cooperation and competition are actually very closely related. They're not two separate ideas. They're, they're very closely related. And so maybe it's more a, a rediscovery of like, oh, yeah, community and acknowledging how much we stand on one another's shoulders. Um, is a really important thing. Honoring those that came before is a really important thing um, because we'd maybe forgotten it for a while. Mm, Yeah. I like that perspective. Uh, I think they did an excellent job with the documentary Journey to 100. I think you agree with that as well. But I mean, here we're talking oh, Lauren, about... Lauren, Lauren did an awesome job. Yeah, I'm going to shout her out. Lauren was an amazing director. Aiden did an awesome job with his edit. Um, everyone else who was associated, you know, Andrew out there with a camera, the whole crew, like uh, a little behind the scenes thing. They spent a night with no sleeping gear and no food on the side of Little Tahoma to make sure they got a shot of me um, because they didn't know when they had to be there because if a traverse had worked that wasn't melted out, I would have been there that that same day as I did Rainier. Um, but instead, it was melted out, and so I had to go all the way around. So it wasn't until the next morning uh, that I was coming up. So they basically spent a night on the side of, on the side of Little Tahoma to be sure they got this shot. It's like, man, the level of commitment that went into bringing this film together was absolutely astounding. Um, so yeah, mad props to them. Yeah, I can't, I don't know how they created such a comprehensive film in 30 minutes is beyond me. Like that's just, that's mastery. But is there a story that comes to mind that maybe isn't in the film that you would like to share? Oh, so much. So <laughs> obviously... And this is totally normal for people that have films made of them. Um, The first time I watched it, I couldn't help but think and be sad about all the things that didn't make the final cut, right? Because this was was the story of my life, you know, chronicling like being the ADHD kid and what that process was like and the relationship with my dad and, and how there were tensions there. And then going into the car accident and it like flies past the car accident in like a matter of a few seconds. And it's like, oh man, that was two years of my life where I had to redefine how I interacted with my own identity. Um, and then the four-year FKT project and then 50 days of continuous effort for the Bulgers uh, all put into a 30-minute film. And they did an amazing job. But obviously, you know, stuff has to be cut out. And so, I mean, I could, I could answer this question in so many ways. Like my ADHD brain is bouncing all over the place right now <laughs> to try to be like, which one is the most important? Um, so that all being said, I guess I'll, I'll just pull out, maybe I'll pull out since the, the film 
is pretty buoyant and and the final edit didn't include any of the footage or storytelling from some of the hardships faced. Maybe I'll describe a story where things got difficult. Um, so my girlfriend, Ashley, my, my partner, Ashley, she's, uh, she's a mountain guide and she had a chance to guide with awe expeditions and all women's, um, international guiding company. And they were going to guide on Shasta, but it was right in the middle of my effort. So she was going to have to leave and it caused her great grief and strife where it's like, Oh, this is a wonderful opportunity to do a really good thing. But also like, it means I'm going to leave you out there on your own. And at the same time, uh, my climbing partner, Nathan Longhurst, who ended up climbing 65 of the peaks with me. And uh, then he'd skied some of them earlier that year and finished up the rest of them on his own to become the youngest finisher um, of the list ever. Um, super cool side outcome of this project was, you know, because he climbed with me, uh, he ended up becoming the youngest finisher. Um, and he had to be gone because his sister was getting married. So here I am, middle of the project, like exhausted, tired, alone for a section, just completely alone, no support whatsoever. Like I'm going to drive myself, feed myself, climb the mountains myself, all of that. And it's like I've climbed mountains alone. A huge part of the early part of this FKT gauntlet was sort of that reclaiming personal power, which is why if somebody goes in meticulously, not that anybody ever would, but if somebody ever bothered to meticulously go through my list, they'd be like, wow, early on, he was very much about being solo and unsupported out there and on some very difficult, dangerous places. It's like, ah, oh, that was, that was because that part of the gauntlet was my own rite of passage, I guess, for myself. Um, after coming out of the accident, I needed, I needed to go out and have it just be me and myself and nature. Um, but to, to not get on too many tangents, um, I was out there alone for these peaks and they, they were gone. And I woke up the next day having like finished up this group and driven up and they had just left that day. Ashley had just left that day earlier. And I wake up the next morning, thick smoke in the air. And one of the primary things I had designed the order in which I did the peaks around was the risk of fire closure, the most catastrophic risk of the whole endeavor. Um, because, you know, a fire breaks out, the land is closed, boom, game over. It doesn't matter if you're on peak 99 and the fire happens on peak 100. No record, no completion. Try again. Um, and that was like one of the biggest, most chaotic unknowns of the whole thing to have to hold and, and, and be present with the entire time that I could do everything right and still fail. Um, and so I wake up and, you know, sleep deprived, sore, achy, fatigued, mental fog and smoke in the air. So instantly my brain is like, oh no, it's over. Like, this is it. Like, I didn't even do anything wrong. It's just, it's going to be over. Like, where's this fire? So I start like, you know, frantically trying to get information. There's broken service. So like I'm having other people try to send me stuff and manage to piece together that, no, okay, as far as I can tell, none of the land I have to walk through or peaks I have to climb are closed. But three of the peaks that I was going to climb later are right near the fire where if the winds shifted, it could potentially get closed. So that would be a 15 minute drive normally, but highway 20 was closed by the fire. So had to drive eight hours to get around to these peaks. Um, and so lose this, this chunk of the day and have to kind of start climbing in the, in the afternoon evening. Um, and 
just kind of like struggling mentally, mentally to kind of recoup the, the momentum and the energy. And of course, now the air, instead of being bluebird and beautiful, is full of smoke and, you know, like to the degree that you almost have a taste in your mouth. And I remember just like wrestling with doubts and unsureness. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm hiking out into the backcountry with a fire right next to me like is this really a wise decision right that's also a thing like uh, you know if the winds shift and i'm out here um what what is the cost of that um and so having to wrestle through all these thoughts um and i get out there and i remember i crested a a pass right as it was kind of hitting that golden hour and of course smoke kind of amplifies the golden hour and makes the oranges more orange and all that and the first peak, Tower Peak, came into view that I was going to climb in this group, this group of three that I needed to get out of, get done before, you know, in case the fire spread more. And it was just caught in this like perfect golden hour uh, orange. And it was like at that same time, like I'd kind of been working through all of these like doubts and unsurenesses and just loneliness, like here I am alone and da da da, dealing with all this. And it was like I kind of had sorted that. And then I stepped up over and saw the peak come into view. And it was just kind of this like, yeah, okay, let's do this. I'm where I need to be. Keep moving forward. Um, and then, you know, hiked into the night to get to the base of it and climbed the three of them the next day. Um, but it was like this deep low point that was a whole lot of some of the more difficult emotions we face as human beings layered on top of each other. And just having to continue moving forward while, while feeling all those. Um, yeah. So, you know, in other words, it was a metaphor for life. <laughs> I was just oh going to say, I'm like, he's talking about the spiritual <laughs> path. Like, you know, you're just bushwhacking and you're falling into the valley and the, the forest is on fire, but you just keep, keep going. going. <laughs> and, you just, and then you, and we always talk about like, oh my gosh, if you can just, if you can just keep going with yourself, you know, and wrestle all those things you got to wrestle that are, that are deep within you in the corners of your joints and you get to the top. Like the view is just, the view is, is life changing, right? It's like trans, it's transformation in an instant. Um, yeah, that was, that was beautiful. So beautiful. <laughs> it's a powerful story to, to, to emulate, um, you know, the, the mantra to just keep going. Like when you hit those brick walls and we experience it in our life too, when, when everyone said, oh, it doesn't look doesn't look like you should keep going. Like you get to that point, you got to keep going. You know, and I guess this is the faith or trust that you may have inside this, this belief that you know that there's something, whether it's front of mind at the moment or not, because it sounds like you had some doubts and fears, but you, there's a knowing that when you get to the top, there's something there waiting for you. You don't know what it is. You don't know good or bad, um, what we refer to as good or bad, but you know that something's there. There's that faith and trust. Is that pretty strong? That's pretty strong in you. Yeah, I think, and I think, I mean, our pursuits as ultra endurance athletes and athletes kind of give us a very tangible, real lesson in this sort of metaphorical spiritual principle in that, like, I think back to my first 100K 
And I was more focused on Ironman than I was on ultra running at the time. And so I kind of was like, I'm just going to do it as a B race, um, you know, as we, as we do sometimes. And it's like, I'm going to sure. do my first hundred K as a B race. So I like came into it with my legs already a little bit toast from just like training right up into it. Like what a, what a foolish thing to do, right? Like look back at some decisions I made in my twenties, like, ah, yeah, you really, you really thought you, uh, had more than you had. Uh, and anyways, my promise to myself was, it's like, okay, I'm going to go out super slow, easy pace the whole time, da, da, da. Unfortunately, I show up and a bunch of my friends who are lead pack kind of guys are there and I'm chatting with them and da, 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 da. And the gun goes off while we're like still chatting. And so I just take off with the lead pack and like still kind of chatting a bit, da, 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 da. And then I get like five miles deep and I look down and it's like my heart rate is up in like the 180s. And I'm like, it is mile six of my first 100K and I'm already mildly anaerobic. And anyways, somehow I make the decision to just keep hanging with them, even in spite of all this data, right? Like talk about foolish. Um, it's like, maybe it'll work out. Uh, so at mile 11, we just crested one of the like first hard climbs of this thing. And like my vision just starts to go boom. And I like have to flop onto the ground because I'm like, oh man, I'm going to pass out. And at this point I'm feeling queasy and my heart rate is insane through the roof. And I like, I'm laying there. I'm like, this is over. Like, there's no way. I feel terrible. And I'm 11 miles into a 62 mile race. And, and I'm like feeling nauseous too and all that. And then for some reason out of the sky, again, something hits me where it's like, there are people who will never run a step with the lead pack who come to these events and all they ever do, no hope of winning, no hope of prizes, no hope of age group awards. Um, they show up to these races and they do nothing more than fight to stay ahead of the cutoff times, the entire mm -hmm. effort. And it's like, okay, out of honor and respect of those people, I have three options. I have three options. They pull me because I'm medically unsafe to continue. They pull me because I'm behind a cutoff time or I go out through the finish line. And that was it. Those were the only options. Like, doesn't matter how it feels. I'm just going to keep moving. And so for 49 more miles, or whatever that math comes out to, not a math genius, um, for 49 more miles, I marched and wobbled and, and I didn't do any crawling, but it came close. Um, and slow shuffle jogged downhill uh, when the seldom times I could, feeling nauseous. Like it was one of those times where I, you know, mentally I thought like, oh, at some point I'll feel better. Like that day, no, I never, the whole time the alarm bells just kept going off. Like, there's no way you're going to die. You're going to fail. There's no way. But I, the, the relationship I'd created with myself in that moment was I would look down at my legs and I would go, am I still moving toward my goal? And it's like, I could see the muscles physically carrying me toward my goal. And it's like, okay, shut up mind we're still making it right. Like it's like that mo that, that movement is still there. And so it's like, ever since then, I've had this agreement that in the moments, like it gets hard, like the thing I'll do is I'll look down at my legs. It's like, they're still moving. So it, like all the other data is irrelevant because the one data point that really actually matters is, am I moving toward the goal? And the answer is yes. So, 
okay, feel however you want. You're still, you're still moving toward it. Um, and I think, I think that's a huge like physical lesson we can take and apply to the rest of our lives that it's really easy to get caught up in all the other information, all the other feedback and all the things like it feels this way or this person says this or whatever else is going on. Um, and then you, you, you have to get back down to the core of it and go, wait a minute, the, the, the physics say I'm still moving towards my goal, <laughs> um, which is a really, it's much easier to say that than to do it in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there's a huge lesson there. Yeah, those are those are defining moments, right? Really, really important defining moments. And now you have your you have your connection. Your when you look down at your legs, that's 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 what works for you. Like, what a gift that you have that now, and you've made that relationship, and now it's going to carry you through um, your future races. I, I feel some people miss those moments um, that present themselves so clearly, and we don't we don't grab them. Um, which is actually the thing that is actually going to propel us forward, not the minutia in our minds. So mm-hmm. defining moments, um, your return to triathlon, and it, was that at Ironman Oceanside? Was that your, mm-hmm. your first race back? Um, I'm so bummed that we missed you. Like, I think, <laughs> I think I had seen you out on the course at one point, because I remember your shoes, and I think I reached out to you on social media after, and I'm like, those are sweet colored shoes. <laughs> um, how did that go for you? Like, tell us, because we, we can't not talk about triathlon with, oh, with absolutely. your background. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I hope we'll actually talk about uh, picnics as well uh, before we hang up the phone. Um, yeah, so uh, since I, you know, I'm on the athletic team, I was, they, they, they now are the title sponsor of uh, Oceanside and Barcelona for uh, Ironman 70.3 and, and Ironman. Um, and so I was like, okay, I can, I can go participate in this race. And it would be kind of like a, uh, it would be the first race, actually a little bit of the story that you guys might enjoy is one of the first things I did. Um, cause I mentioned, I told the storyline of, I qualified for both the 2014 and 2015 world championships. And then I went out the car window in May of 2015 and the 2015 world championships were in September, uh, already had like paid and, and all that for the spot. So something I became obsessed with and consumed by and motivated by was to do everything it took. One of the ways I sort of reclaimed my personal power, if you will, and my independence, my sense of independence is like, I'm going to go finish that thing. Like I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Even if, even if I hobble every step into the finish line, I'm going to, I'm going to go finish. And I actually went and finished that race. I, I actually had a fairly decent swim time and a mate. I don't know how I did it. I had one of the two-sided power meters and my uninjured leg was doing 70% of the power. And somehow I still biked like a top 300 bike time, um, with one, one leg doing all the work. Um, but then, yeah, the run was like the slowest half marathon of my life. Like I literally limp walked the whole thing. Uh, but luckily had like banked enough time, um, in the swim and the, and the bike that I could basically hobble my way all the way to the finish line. And that metal, uh, I actually have it, I have it, uh, in a bag right now. Cause sadly something traumatic that happened at our school is, uh, one of my students was out riding their bike and got hit by a car and it broke both of his ankles. And so I actually pulled it off this wall behind me and I'm going to go hand it to him to keep for the summer, mm. um, with the story and the, have it be a symbol for him. Like, Hey, 
this is something that has some meaning. It's not yours. Don't get me wrong. It's not yours. I, I did the work to earn this one, but you, you can hold on to this until you have one of your own that you've, you've made for yourself. Um, and gonna, gonna give that one to him because it was a huge, huge moment for me. Um, so anyways, coming back to triathlon because that, that had already been sort of done like that, that feeling, those emotions that needed to be solved were solved there. Um, Oceanside, you know, and again, kind of this beautiful thing of the process I mentioned early on in the FKTs, they were very much my own. It was me and nature and that's what it needed to be. Um, but one of the, the outcomes as I came up to the Bulgers effort and after the Bulgers effort is now I'm much more interested in the opportunities I can create for others and the things I can share with other people and the experiences I can go share with other people. I think I had to go through a journey for myself first to arrive at that place where I was ready for it. Um, and I'm sure like, I'll still need more journeys into the wilderness on my own. Like, don't get me wrong. Like we all need to revisit that space. Um, but that was what coming to Oceanside was, is COVID had happened and I'd had conversations virtually with all of these people who played a significant part in helping support me and, and, and tell this story and, and all of this and never gotten to meet any of them. And they were all going to be at Oceanside. And so the decision to come back was less about me and like performing at the race. Um, I mean, I wasn't even, I was still beat up from the Bulgers the first, the first year I did, I did Oceanside two years. Um, the first year I did Oceanside right after the Bulgers effort. I mean, I was still like sore and not moving well at that point. Um, but I showed up to the race for the sake of getting to meet and, and, and experience these people, these human beings in, in their real form in person. Um, and so that's, that's really what it was about for me. Um, it was less about, oh yeah, I'm going to come race like I used to. Um, and more just like, Hey, this is a chance to really sort of relish in the community that I have. Hmm. Are there any more triathlons on your, on your sketch? As of now, there are not. Um, I do have, I, I alluded to picnics. I do have a couple yeah. of picnics. So what picnics are for the people who are listening that don't know what they are. The, the first one, um, was made by David Gonzalez called the Grand Teton picnic. And, you know, he humorously called it a picnic cause it's, you know, that's a leisure activity and, the, the picnic is you bike from Jackson Hole, Wyoming to Jenny Lake. You swim dead across the middle of Jenny Lake for a mile, mile and a half. And then you summit the Grand Teton, which involves fifth class rock climbing. You then come back down, swim back across to your bike and bike back to town. So it's this human powered experience to get into nature. And that's the heritage. And I fell in love with the idea as I was doing these FKTs. I'm like, oh, I have to figure out new applications of this in spaces where there's a beautiful lake and a beautiful bike ride and a beautiful mountain climb. And so I did one on Mount Shasta. Um, and then the one I, I really love that I created is uh, the Yosemite picnic. And that's like, uh, that's sort of a revered space in the, in the outdoor space because there's so many like, uh, climbing speed records and this huge heritage of pushing limits in the space. And so it was one I took very seriously, like, oh, I don't want to mess up even a minor detail of this because I'll get picked apart, you know, like almost this fear, like the, the people who've been here longer than me will, will be like, um, so just meticulously plan this thing. And so you start at the base of El Cap, you know, this iconic, iconic 
uh, monolith of granite. And you're right there on the road underneath it. And you bike all the way up to Tanaya Lake in Tuolumne Meadow. So it's this epic, like 43 mile bike ride with like 6,000 feet of, of climbing. Um, and then you hop off the bike and you swim across the length, right through the middle, across the length of Tanaya Lake, which I found out later is like a checklist bucket list lake swim for people who are just into lake swimming. Um, and it's, I can see why, like it's one of the few swims I've ever enjoyed. Um, I'm not, I'm not a person that relishes in swimming. It's, it's my weak point when it comes to triathlon. Uh, but it's like every time you're turning to site, you're looking at some amazing piece of granite rising out of the 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 meadow around you. It's like, okay, this is pretty cool. Um, I don't even need to site forward because I can just like see see which way the rocks are going. Um, and then you get out of that lake swim and you do this famed rock climbing link up called the Tuolumne Triple Crown, which is climbing the five four slabs of Tanaya Peak. And then there's this mile-long ridgeline climb called Mathis Crest. And it's like a genuine razor ridge where you're like, it's imagine climbing across the back of your couch hand over hand, except instead of being on your couch, you have thousands of feet of air on either side. And so it's like a mile of just like that type of climbing and running across these ledges and platforms uh, between the climbing. And then you come off of that and you do the classic cathedral peak, which is if anybody's ever Googled that peak, it's like this like perfect like pointy triangle this perfect pointy cone you i mean it's called a cathedral for a reason um and it's this beautiful five six rock climbing to get to the top of it um and then you run back down to the lake swim back to your bike and then you get to bomb down that six thousand feet of uh vert back down to the base of el cap and then that's where the timer stops and so <laughs> getting to getting to like bring bring sort of this full expression of my triathlon days and my ability in technical spaces and route finding and and all of that to bear in one push uh was yeah definitely one of my favorite fkts that doesn't get talked about super often um yeah yeah that's so cool oh my gosh (laughs) that's beautiful like you've taken triathlon and you've made it very unique to you right like at least the the adventures um the adventures that you're creating for yourself i think that's a perfect place to wrap it up um although i know i feel like we could talk Talk forever forever. (laughs) uh and i feel like we're gonna talk again i hope so yeah this has been a great pleasure Well, we have, uh, we were saying the other day, it'd be so fun to have Ashley and you and me and Beach do a, do a podcast. Do a Smackdown, yeah. Yeah. Little, little couples yeah. thing. After your summer adventures, when you're back in school, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll touch base with you guys, see if you're up for that. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that would be a be lot amazing. of fun. That would be a lot of fun. I we've think only so been, too. We've only been interviewed once together, which is kind of crazy, you know, yeah. since it's like king yeah. and queen of FKTs. Um, yeah. Although other people, I, I do want to admit, other people call me that more than I ever refer to myself as that. It feels kind of, uh, I don't know, silly to be like, I'm the king of FKTs. Uh, so <laughs> I let other people call me that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's fun, though. It's fun to hear you say it. Um, yeah, I think that'd be good. She feels very like just she's got this like earth. She's, you know, like more this like groundedness. And then I see like that fire in you. And I think that would be a super fun conversation. We dive into some some couple some couple Coupling. logistics. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. As all four of us are independent souls pursuing what we love in this in this world. But Jason, thank you so much for your time today and your patience. We had some technical issues at the beginning. 
morning. And I've just really enjoyed hearing you talk. And, and I really hope that our listeners take away a lot of gold from this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I hope they enjoy the film as well. Um, yeah, if they're just hearing about it here. Um, yeah, kind of my my heart and soul on the line with that one. So I hope they like it. <laughs> I've, I've said to people a few times when they've written back like, oh, I loved it. It's like, oh, good. Because I would have felt like if you didn't like it, you you don't actually like me. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think, yeah, like I said, Lauren did such a good job in those 30 minutes of truly capturing an amazing amount of story. So yeah, I hope I hope they're able to enjoy that. Yeah, it's so cool. And then we have um, we have a podcast with Bill from Athletic, uh, who we haven't even launched it yet, but it will launch by the time that we launch this. And he kind of talks about how he, you know, found out about you and talks a little bit about the film as well. So it's cool to get his perspective. Um, but yeah, we'll put links to all that in the show notes. People have to go and watch the film. It's 30 minutes. I've already watched it a few times and um, it's super inspiring. And I just think that you're a beautiful soul living your purpose and I'm grateful to know you. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for saying that and I'm happy to be here.